you know, I wouldn't say it's a watershed moment. It's more like a, a trickle rather than a watershed. A trickle or, shed moment. You know the outhouse that Shrek bursts out of at the beginning of Shrek? That's a trickle <laughs> <laughs> moment to change your lane I came home from the wasteland heroic and triumphant like a comic book girl created out of nothing like a comic book girl hey wait who are you Oh yeah, we should introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Parker, you she, her, and Brad's gonna need to drag me to a dog wash in order to get all the grease out of my hair, but he's gonna have to drag me out of my fort made of Fogbuster cans in order to get me there. What? Why is your hair greasy? I just moved. I'm disgusting. I haven't showered in way too long. Oh. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a repulsive little slime goblin right now, but that's uh, not a lot <laughs> different from usual, so. Anyway. What about- Um, my name's Cassandra. Okay. Okay. Uh, great. My, name my name is Sandra. I use she/her pronouns. My fun—I have two fun facts. Fun fact number one is that I am caffeinated today. Fun fact number two is that they make sugar-free raspberry peace tea. These fun facts are related. Uh, anyway, who's our uh, who's our Monty Crunchy friend? A caterpillar. I'm air so rich. Speaking of caterpillars, I can't wait until we get to book 19. Eric Carl's very hungry caterpillar. Uh, yeah, no, but who are you? You're stealing the stage from me, Cassandra. My name's Erso, and and I don't have any fun facts except for the fact that I was too busy drawing dragons this week to read the book. So That's awesome. I'm here just because I like hanging out with people. <laughs> I'm the worst. Happy to be part of your social system. Yes. Um, okay, let's get started. I want to hear about this book. I read like the first six chapters. Cool. So yeah, Animorphs Volume 15, The Escape. I suppose I'll, I'll I'll go over and give as quick a synopsis. I don't have like a synopsis prepared, but I'll just uh, I'll just kind of blaze through and figure out what's going on here. The story begins with Cassie instigating the group to rescue some parrots at your favorite local animal rainforest themed restaurant marco and jake uh after leaving from some shenanigans run into eric uh eric the chief lets jake and marco know that viscer one is back on earth viscer one obviously is marco's mother and that she's got some sort of crazy underwater project going uh in and like off the coast of an island nearby it seems like the yurks have figured out a way to control a species of telepathic alien who are aquatic, and this is a problem because if the telepathic aliens hear the thoughts of the Animorphs, they'll realize that they're humans and the Animorphs' cover will be blown. Marco has some emotions about his mother being Visser One. That's basically what this whole book is about, but they figure out some plans. Tobias can morph, and he wants to be involved, but they need to get him an aquatic morph, so they go to the gardens and... Dolphin rodeo. Dolphin rodeo. Dolphin rodeo occurs. Tobias manages <laughs> oh, to go acquire a dolphin morph at the expense of nearly his own life. This is the level of ridiculousness that should have happened last book, but... Yeah. Uh, they all morph dolphins and go check out this underwater complex that is uh, hidden by a sort of illusion field. Um, it's okay. You can call it a hologram. It's a hologram. Right. Thank you. I forgot the word for hologram. There's a bunch of hammerhead sharks who act in a coordinated fashion to fight them off. 
they are uh they are mm-hmm. in their daughter dolphin morphs and they are sort of battered mm-hmm. and bruised and need to get out of there mm-hmm. as quick as possible Technically, Jaws was a great white uh, and not a hammerhead shark. I like 20 times because I love that movie. Uh, Axe implies the existence of an encyclopedia of galactic life forms and is disappointed in his own failure to memorize it. Is that by the same publishing company that publishes The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Oh, yeah. Let's see. They decide they need to morph hammerheads in order to blend in. They go to the really fancy uh, new sort of like sea world situation. They realize, or they get caught by some security guards, one of whom is a controller, one of whom sees Axe out of morph in his sort of normal Andalite body. A gunfight ensues. Um, a big hole gets blown in the side of one of the panels. Massive chaos. Everybody's in the water. Everybody's trying to get out. Marco manages to swim up a ventilation shaft that has been flooded. He manages to sort of like trap a hammerhead in there and they all acquire hammerhead morphs and leave. It's a big news item the next day. Uh, Marco fails to read Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Can't relate. They morph hammerheads. They go check out what's going on over there. They get scooped up by an automated yerk process that implants a device, like a mechanical device, into their brains in a really graphic, nasty scene where a bunch of hammerheads get picked up by sort of claw machines. They realize as they are in shark morph that the devices that have been implanted are augmenting their shark brains uh, so that they can eventually have complex enough brains that the yerks can turn hammerhead sharks into controllers for use on the homeworld of these aliens. They try to morph out of shark form and they realize that they can't because they have machines in their brain. They realize that they have to disable... Okay, so I think the word that's used is liquidate. I think what the word that they mean is liquefy. They realize that they can uh, they can get rid of these devices if they destroy the entire facility, the entire underwater yard facility. So That kind of is liquidating the facility. Uh, maybe uh, liquidate to me always. I think about like liquidating assets, like you sell it. Yeah, but facility for sale, slightly used, slightly used, mildly, lightly, Just a few lightly dense. used. They all zip, zoop, zabadoo, doop, dap, dap back on over to this underwater area. Marco encounters his mother out of morph. He's not morphing. He has to sort of pretend to be a controller in a sort of last minute, last ditch effort to sort of conceal the mission and he comes face to face with the controller that his mother has become and her sort of coldness and her sort of blasé sort of statement of the facts is that uh he is her son and she doesn't really care about whether he lives or dies considering she's controller uh kind of rattles him but he manages to keep his composure one of the lyrans who are the telepathic aliens uh alerts Vister one that he's a human while he's a gorilla morph a little bit later and uh she's just like no absolutely it can't be Visser three shows up um the facility gets destroyed the animorphs manage to escape God. Presumably, Marco's mother slash Visser One manages to escape in a super futuristic sp- submarine. Yeah, they manage to collapse this whole operation. The machines in their head liquefy. Uh, have they learned anything? Not to keep secrets. They definitely destroyed a big underwater operation. So, would you say that the uh, Yerk's business is now underwater? Boo. <laughs> I guess you could say that, and you wouldn't technically be wrong. <laughs> By the end of this, at least Rachel, but I think all of the Animorphs know that. Yeah, I mean, I think at that point Marco's it just becomes moot to keep it a secret. Yeah, so the, yeah. The, the, the cat is out of the bag on that one. 
Um, and that is a rough synopsis of... The Yerk is out of the brainstem on that one. Is, ooh, <laughs> I hate that. Yeah, so I went into this class discussion thinking, oh, I don't really have anything to say about this book. And um, took my notes for our discussion. And uh, guys, I have a lot of things to say about this book. Let's get into it because this is a lot to break down. Holy moly. Yeah. Okay, my absolute first thing I want to say is that it is so funny that both within the journals and within like popular culture and our society, Cassie is viewed as like maybe not as level-headed as Jake, but like relatively level-headed um, and like chill. And this whole absolutely ridiculous parrot scheme is the collaboration of Cassie and Marco, who are like quietly the most unhinged Animorph combo. I think it like just, I think it's a perfect marriage of like the fact that Cassie is like, you know, where their interests align is where chaos and positivity can both happen in one fell swoop. I think Cassie's just been like reading the Monkey Wrench Gang and um, really wants to do some eco-terrorism, which I support. Yeah, I dig it. As a creature who also resides in the sort of middle ground between chaos and positivity, I uh, I think this is a pretty rad plan. It's it's a great plan. It's just so funny that's coming from Cassie, but then you remember that like all of the insect-based plans have also come from Cassie. So oh, I never forgot. <laughs> Right, but it's just like before we did this reread for class, I hadn't read them in so long. And I was like, oh yeah, Cassie's like the the chill one, right? And I'm reading them. I'm like, no, she's not the chill one. Everyone she's else the is quietly just, disturbed one. Everyone else is just so ridiculous in comparison to Cassie that she seems like the chill one. Cassie just has a, a smaller quantity of things that set her off. Yeah. But the things that set her off set her off. Yeah. That is very true. Um, so anyway, this has been my Cassie's unhinged plan appreciation corner. <laughs> Especially when you can free some some parrots from a terrible restaurant that I definitely didn't go to as a child and hated. I actually have never been to one of these Amazon cafes or whatever. I always walked by them when I was a kid. I think I wanted to go because I was really into the sort of rainforest when I was a terribly small child, but... Uh... Now, if they had Dinosaur Cafe, I would be into a Dinosaur Cafe. Didn't they have one of those? Probably. They do this cool this cool act of corporate sabotage. I was going to say light eco-terrorism. I wouldn't call it terrorism, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's definitely... I feel like I would be pretty terrified if I was eating there and a parrot said to me, Hey, there's rats in your burger. The thing is, what is going to happen to those parrots, though? They're going to be fired with no <laughs> compensation. <laughs> to collect unemployment no severance package <laughs> for parrots <laughs> purely at will employees the parrots aren't eligible for unemployment they were fired for disparaging the company it's a reason, <laughs> reason to fire them they're not eligible for unemployment insurance in many oh locations God. they've doomed these parrots Oh, okay, so they did this to prevent future parrots being hired in this position and not just like stealing the parrots away and saving these particular parrots. I mean, I assume that this is why the Amazon cafe near where I grew up had animatronics and not actual animals. Uh, we reintroduce the irony gods as a concept that the kids keep sort of bamboozling acts with. Um, <laughs> it keeps coming up. <laughs> it's really funny because, um, you know, a few years after these memoirs were first officially released, 
some people started ironically worshiping the irony gods and started an ironic cult of the irony gods oh my which God. eventually no, became so serious that there is now a well-established cult of the irony gods that is like a major religion you are jo- you are joking right no there's a chapter right down the street for me this is a real thing um, this is fake there's I've never heard of this we discovered that tobias is just terrified of water um of like big open water and does not like to swim yeah i know it's sweet he's baby yeah. i mean he he's war crime baby but he's baby i used to be very afraid of going in the water growing up probably because i just had weird body image issues but <laughs> oh yeah definitely me too I'm just slightly amphibious, so. Red. Not like literally. I feel like I do need to clarify. I do not have morphing abilities. I am not a Lyran. I am not actually amphibious. I just grew up near water. Anyways, let's talk about Lyrans. <laughs> They're psychic frogs. But they got tentacles. Moving on. They got tentacles. They got them tentacles. I do have tentacles? I wasn't paying attention. I'm not exactly t- as tentacle focused as it seems you two are. They have four tentacles coming out of their body and they're sticking out on the sides. What part of their body are the tentacles coming out of? Their arms. The crotch. All right. No! Okay, moving on. <laughs> Here's the dolphin rodeo. Dolphin rodeo. Oh, we were talking about Tobias, and he's scared of water. And also, we love Tobias, and he's so sarcastic. I was just going to quote the text. Yes, go for it. Um, where is it? Uh, here we go. Uh, Marco says, Axe has a shark morph from when we first rescued him. That will do as well as a dolphin. And if Tobias doesn't want to morph... I didn't say that, Tobias says quickly. Um, <laughs> Tobias hesitated. No, you're right. I should do the dolphin thing. 20 miles over water. Those aren't really my best flying conditions. You tend not to get thermals over water. I'll do it. I'll acquire a dolphin morph. Okay, yeah, I'll definitely do it. And then, hey, no problem, right? I mean, a dolphin in water. That's like a bird in the air, right? Uh, reminds me of a, the, a certain politician. Um... <laughs> in terms of his speech mannerisms. Uh, yeah. It's very funny. Anyway. Um, poor Tobias. Poor Tobias. Uh, but he gets over it, relatively speaking. He gets over it pretty quick. The morphing brain whole situation definitely helps him out. Chapter 12. Let's talk about chapter 12. Because chapter 12 is the moment at which we really just kind of get into the Marco's masculinity corner that is this book. And his name is... I was about to say, I feel it coming up. I feel like, the power I, building. I we're feel gonna, it in the air. We're going to just have to in the water. bust on into Marco's masculinity corner real quick. Marco's at home and is attempting to get a little bit of therapy re-reggae. Um, his dad... Can I just say, he considered growing dreadlocks? It was the 90s. The entire decade was a fashion nightmare. He's having an extreme emotional crisis that he can only deal with by altering his appearance. And okay. not in an animal way, in like a regular human way. <laughs> yeah, I cut a bunch of my hair off once. I was like, oh, that's a pandemic happening. That's not going to be over quickly. I cut like half my hair off. So Here's the thing. Marco that. tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so he's trying to sort of like process his feelings. Uh, his dad is here and uh, is trying to order a pizza. But he kind of escapes up to his room. Marco's psychology is explored in pretty great detail and i honestly feel like this book has led me to a much better understanding of who he is as a person marco's psychology corner
Uh, I think what he says about his relationship with Jake here is incredibly illuminating and interesting. Mm-hmm. He says, what group do I belong to when I've realized that what looks like my mother is actually someone who would kill me without hesitation? I guess it's what Jake feels every time he sits down to dinner with Tom. I guess he feels the same way I do. Only Jake and I don't talk about that kind of stuff. Jake's my best friend, but he's my best friend because I'm me, you know? Because I'm funny and smart and I back him up anytime, any place. Talk to your friends, Marco. That's not why he's friends with you, Jake. He's Here's the thing. Because he loves you. He's he's your friend because he loves you, but you're in middle school. You don't understand this yet. Like, I'm going to say this isn't Marco's fault. I'm going to say this is the fault of American culture at this point in history. Like That tracks. Marco's in the process of figuring out how important it is to his own perception of his persona that he's the jokester. Like, because he needs help. Like, he needs another person. He needs a shoulder. He really thinks he can just deal with everything. It's, uh, I hope that this is sort of like, that this is a watershed moment where he really thinks about this. And it's... It's It's development. But, you know, I wouldn't say it's a watershed moment. It's more like a a trickle rather than a watershed. Okay. A trickle shed moment. Mmm, that sounds weird. Uh, I'll actually, I gotta, I'll be right back, guys. I gotta go to the trickle shed. Uh, I'll be right <laughs> back. My okay. first thought was, wow, really? You really, you're so, you're so bad at scheduling. You, you, you know the outhouse that Shrek bursts out of at the beginning of Shrek? That's a trickle shed. <laughs> <laughs> Marco yells in his pillow that he is way too young to have to deal with this kind of stuff, and his dad overhears because his dad has come mm. in the room to alert him that dinner is, or not, to that he, if he wants to see if he wants to watch the game. It's hard Marco's, being an animorph. It's hard, and nobody understands. Literally, nobody understands. Dad, Marco's dad tries to do some really nice, solid parenting here. Marco does, in some ways, recognize that his dad is like doing a solid parent here. Yeah, but like Marco can't accept this offer yeah. of help because the risks are too high, and it's tragic. But I think that's definitely like one thing that I've learned in my own life experiences about trauma is that like a lot of the time when you're going through something traumatic knowing that people are there for you in some way even if you aren't necessarily taking advantage of it but knowing that there is someone there for you can like really alleviate a lot of the psychological effects down the road like not completely get rid of them but makes it a little better so shout out to marco's dad for doing a solid parent here even if marco can't take him up on it the the things that we learn about marco in this are that marco is powerfully adverse to the idea of being pitied It is his kryptonite. Big mood! I mean, yes, this is a reasonable sort of like aversion, but also I can't help but feel like it's part of it is like the way that he is understanding the way that the people care about him treat him. This is Rachel's perception too. She also is kind of like allergic to pity here. Like not as much as Marco, but definitely like kind of along the same lines. One thing that I thought was really interesting was like way back at the beginning of the journal, Marco talks about how secretly underneath her persona, Rachel is vulnerable and she does have like some self-esteem issues and she worries about not fitting in. It's just buried so deep that you will never know because she will kill you before you ever get to it. And I was like, you're right, but also are you projecting, Marco? Why are you so, why are you so keen and knowledgeable about this, Marco? Is it because you're speaking from personal experience? <laughs> yeah, because there is a bit of dialogue where Marco teases Rachel in the way that you know, in basically sort of getting at that stuff is like, oh yeah, you're you're you know, he calls her Xena Warrior Princess and like makes a big deal about the fact that she's 
hiding a lot of herself in order to be a functional, like, soldier in defense of Earth. And she shoots back at him with some stuff about him being scared. And he has such a hard time dealing with it. He can't handle that. Like, the fact that she's sort of giving him a taste of his own medicine destroys him for a bit. Like, it really... I don't know if they have, like, a a conversation that's productive this whole book in terms of, like... I think maybe if this were a book written from Rachel's perspective, given the way that these kids seem to cleave to traditional gender roles, (laughs) I bet the sort of, like, emotional tension between the two of them would have been a much more significant part of the book. I think Marco and Rachel are just two people who are very, very similar in a lot of ways. And the ways in which they are similar are ways that mean that the two of them interacting is like nails on the chalkboard for both of them a little bit. Like, I've had this happen with people where I'm like, you seem like a really cool person, but the traits that we have in common mean that we will never get along. Your sheer existence proves something about me that I dislike, therefore. So, like, for example, I am loud and dramatic and often like to be the center of attention as i'm sure you both have noticed no Um, and so sometimes when i am in social situations with someone who is equally loud and dramatic and who likes to be the center of attention and who is not willing to do that collaboratively so that we are sort of both being the clowns of the party but who is doing it competitively i find that extremely grating because i would much prefer to be sort of collaboratively goofing together. But they're like, oh no, I have to be the center of attention. Uh, the, uh, another facet to Marco's struggle here is summed up by a thing he says in conversation with Jake a little bit earlier while he's in thought speak. He says, no matter how many morphs, no matter how many battles, no matter what, I'll still be me. Everyone better accept that. Is that a, a, a queer mood I'm hearing? Uh, perhaps, <laughs> my goodness, could I... Is it? Is that a queer maneuver? That familiar ring in my ears, it sounds... Is that a sexuality? Yeah, but he's like, his refusal to change and his refusal to be pitied, I feel like are linked in some way. Um, because, like, ultimately... Those are both traits that do not serve him well. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, like, we see the writing on the wall. I think he sees the writing on the wall as well, that, like, this experience of being an Animorph and of fighting for Earth is going to change him. Like, there's yeah. nothing that he could do to stop that. This is the struggle of, like, growing up, you know? Yeah, but that, that posturing to assert his identity sort of exposes the fragility of his uh, emotional core. He's just a squishy little boy on the inside who does war crimes. Imagine if your life was built upon trying to pretend that your mom never left. Hmm? My life is built on pretending other stuff. <laughs> well, maybe you're a squishy Marco, too. I mean, I, I have already said that, like, in the grand scheme of things, I am very much a Marco. Uh, so the rest of this was me kind of just reading this journal and being like, oh, wow, oh, geez, they do a lot. There's a lot of action yeah. sequences. Um, you try to keep sort of track of all of it was kind of difficult. Yeah, I just kind of gave up on keeping track of who was where and what was happening. I was like, okay, I guess Jake's yelling at someone over there and going raw. Cool, whatever, bye. <laughs> I love your I love your notes, Cassandra. Ah, body horror. Ah, incredibly sad. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say. Yeah, one of my notes is just ah, body horror. That was specifically about them trying to morph flies and the the thing in their brain. Ah. Oh yeah, that's horrible. <laughs> Bordering on triggering for me. This this yeah this series becomes very triggering for me at various points. <gasps>
Don't worry about it. I do want to highlight another tragic figure from this journal, which is security guard number one at mm-hmm. the uh, at the thing who sees a bunch of punk kids breaking into the area uh, and then also sees uh, a deer alien with eye stalks and is just like, what is going on? And then his captain says, what's that? And the captain asks Holly, why, that's an Andalite, son. That is certainly an Andalite. And he's just like, oh, what? <laughs> exactly. Like, I read it in. Captain, you've got to tell me what's going on here, the first guard said plaintively. And then he gets knocked out. Like, this guy just, like, this guy has a bad day. You had a bad day. You're taking one down. You see an Andalite, and then you turn around. <laughs> it did. You're you're turned around forcibly against your will. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that sucks. Uh, yeah, just crazy stuff happens. The scene where he's trying to pretend to be a controller in front of his mother is just grueling. It's yeah, so rough. Oh my gosh, that's it hurts. The fact that he's able to maintain his composure for this scene is actually incredible and speaks to a, a degree, a, like a wellspring of strength that he has in. I think it's a wellspring of strength and also compartmentalization. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> it's remarkable that he's able to do it. It's like. It's I, remarkable. Remarkable. I do think that he oh, actually God. has, by implication, already displayed that strength and sort of composure. Um, because we know that he took care of his dad, like, single-handedly for yes. years. Um, and that he has, like, coped poorly but kept up a good front. Mm. Ari, his mother's alleged death. And he kept that secret from the other Animorphs for a while. And, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I think that Marco's like, a really good actor. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between being an actor and being able to lie to people, though, because I have done a fair amount of acting and I have been told that I'm a pretty good actor, but I can't lie to people to save my life. Yeah, it's different when it's personal, but, I mean, he has to actually save his life sometimes, so... Yeah. Like, maybe you could lie if you literally had to save your life. Yeah, maybe. Uh, the other thing about this exchange that I want to highlight is um, is a thing that Visser 1 says about... Uh, about her rival. If that clown Visser 3 thinks he could damage me the eyes of the Council of 13 by sabotaging this project, he's a bigger fool than I thought. So Yerks have a, a, a concept of what clowns are? Um, okay. <laughs> no. Well, you see, there was this historical position of the court jester no. in Yerkes's... I no, don't I'm believe kidding. this. This is not <laughs> true. You are lying to me about Yerk history, Cassandra. I'm saying I'm good at lying and acting. Yeah, but I, but no, because I, I knew that that wasn't true, though. Like, did Yerks pick up on... No. What's going on here? Erso, do you, they... can you explain? So when a Yerk resides in a host body for a really long time, they have, like, cultural osmosis, basically. They what start... happens when I go through social media sites and I learn way more than I ever wanted to about fandoms I'm not part of. Right, exactly. You, you just kind of pick up this stuff by nature of being in the body for a really long time of someone who's like, I don't know, of a different culture than you. <laughs> they have to pretend that there's some there's something else for so long that they just end up kind of gelling with it. And I mean, maybe Visser 3 wouldn't have said that because he's in an Andalite body and he's... Maybe Andalites have clowns. Interested in Andalites. I, somehow I doubt it. Um, <laughs> oh my God. I want to see what an Andalite clown would look like now. I mean, I think that Visser 3 also takes himself way too seriously on purpose. Like, I, I think that Visser 1 is less concerned with 
sort of putting on airs in that degree because she knows that she's powerful, whereas Visser 3 feels like he has to prove himself within the sort of Yurk political structure. Yeah. I think it also would be interesting to look at this from, like, a language and, like, brain stuff perspective because it's, like... Psycholinguistic, perhaps? Sure, if that's a word. Um, anyway, okay, this might come as a shock, but, like, Yurk's native language is not English, right? What? So, like, <laughs> I know, right now. So, like, Yerks don't talk and don't do language anything like how humans do language. So I feel like, this is just a guess, because I am neither a Yerk nor someone who has had a Yerk in their brain, nor a linguist. I feel like maybe Yerks are just kind of accessing the whole brain chunk that does language stuff. So they kind of get the, like... Here's how prepositions work. That makes sense to me. My only sort of like pushback on that is that most of the other controllers and other aliens that we've talked to, Axe for instance, are just like, keep calling it like your earth things or like <laughs> express. There, there are bits where like Visser 3 has to have really basic earth concepts explained to him. <laughs> he doesn't have a human host. He doesn't so, like, have a human host and he hasn't been on earth for that long. So it does yeah, make sense that she would use the, the, the term clown here. Just to draw another comparison between morphing and, like, Yerks having a host body, like, I mean, uh, Tobias had to learn how to fly real good, but every animorph knows no, how to fly when they're a bird. Yeah, no, he, he had to, to learn, learn real good. He, he, learned, he has the hawk brain. He had to learn how to fly like, especially well, because he's better yeah. at flying than the other animorphs, I think. That's, that's textual. Um, okay. It is. Uh, but every like everyone knows how to fly at sort of like a base level when they morph a bird because they're using parts of the brain. Now they don't get you don't get memories through DNA, um, which is kind of slightly arguable. But um, I was going to say you, <laughs> you don't get do. memories through DNA, so you don't get specific morphs memories about experiences that they've had. But when you when there's a host in, uh, or rather when there's a yerk in a host body, then they get all of the memories as well. So it's just kind of like they might, uh, an animorph might just know how to trim their wings to fly down a little bit. I think the yerks just sort of instinctually access those memories because it's the way that the person's brain that they're wrapped around is developed is like to use regular speech, you know? Like yeah. that's speech is a big way in how we um, think. That doesn't work the same way for everybody, but some people have a dialogue in their head. So yeah, no thoughts, only brain pudding. <laughs> no thoughts, only Eric. These these good ideas sort of allow me to recontextualize this and allow me to put the idea of Yerk clowns out of my head for the time being. Oh, please, please, I said court jesters. They're it's clown. The word clown is very specifically used. Yes, but you know it has its origins in the acclaimed tradition of okay. year court jesters. Okay, great. I have a question for you both. Well, okay, I have a couple things to say. Do first, do we have a conspiracy corner this week? Not really. No. Nah. Okay, I sort of figured not. Second, I wanted to talk about conspiracy corners for a second because mm. I wasn't really sure. <laughs> uh, I wasn't really sure if we should keep doing them. Um, I think that there's some uh, potential anti-Semitic connotations that come along with conspiracies. And um, I didn't, I sort of, I knew this, but I had kind of forgotten about it until it was 
brought up to me again, but I was speaking to uh, a couple of my, a couple of friends of mine who are Jewish, and they were, I was saying, oh, you know, conspiracy this, conspiracy that, conspiracy that, with little regard for, like, actually convincing them of anything, but mostly joking. And they were like, well, you know, that's a little dubious just because most people, <laughs> most conspiracies end up being just, like, anti-Semitic rhetoric in, like, behind a thin veil. And so I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. And um, historically, like, a lot of conspiracies just end up being, like, some strange, like, cult theory about a cabal of, I don't know, Jewish people controlling the government, which is, like, very racist and anti-Semitic. So, I don't know, I thought maybe we should uh, not do that anymore. But second of all, I very much enjoy the Conspiracy Corner, and I think it's a very valuable part of our discussion. However, I'm thinking maybe we can just sort of approach it from a different angle. I think that's a great idea. I think kind of rebranding might not might not be too difficult for us, and might allow us to what we're go- what we're doing and like the spirit of what we're doing. Because I don't I don't think the spirit of what we specifically are doing is necessarily harming people. But if the word conspiracy is loaded and makes people feel uncomfortable, I think maybe we could distance ourselves from that. But like come up with another word for like uh something isn't right here, and some historical events were manipulated by these teens. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I could get behind that if that's if that's a thing that that some people have brought up and that we're we're concerned about from a, a social equality standpoint. Then yeah, I dig that. I don't. I do feel like conspiracy as like a term both envelops like you know there are reptilians controlling the government, which is an anti-Semitic dog whistle, <laughs> and also like yeah. hey guys, I think maybe the CIA like overthrew that government, which is true. I was gonna and, say that's yeah. just a fact. It's that's just not even a conspiracy. Our, yeah. Or the but fact that the uh, the FBI was involved in the assassination of Martin Luther King, for instance. Right. So I feel like conspiracy is such a broad word. Mm-hmm. I yeah, no, I, I kind of feel that way, but I don't feel like I kind of have a like to stand on if that's something that does upset people. I think we can avoid discomfort there if we maybe rebrand the conspiracy corner as something a little bit different. Um, I think we don't even necessarily need to rebrand it, but the fact that we've been able to have this conversation is important. So I don't know. We can do our own research and then just like decide. You know, not being Jewish myself and not having an understanding of like the sort of breadth and depth of cultural anti-Semitism, I'm gonna sort of mm-hmm. like seed. I'm gonna seed the floor to people who have that experience and who feel strongly about that one way or the other. Same. No one uses fax machines, but call you'll hear the noise. Statues left by ancient Greeks, the perfect cheeks of goddesses and boys. Piled in the closet, broken toys. Um, I did have one more thing I wanted to talk about. So one thing that I think that kind of annoys me, actually, in this whole journal is the way that... I'm trying to not say this like a liberal arts major. God, um, <laughs> failed. You already failed. Is the way not to be that... a liberal arts major, but <laughs> um, the way I can't. I literally, my brain has been rotted. I've only been in college for a year, and my brain has already been rotted. The the left truly are corrupting our children and their radical liberal arts agendas <laughs> because the truly. only way the only way I can think of to say this is 
the way the body is situated as the site of identity, which sounds like someone's undergrad thesis title. Ugh. I mean, I would I would read that thesis. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> it does. It just also sounds a little insufferable. Something that I noticed a lot in this journal is the way that people, especially Marco, conflate the host body and the Yerk as the same person. Because it's like Marco keeps being like, you know, my mother is Visser One. And it's like, no, your mother is not Visser One. Your mother is a helpless prisoner trapped in the horror of her own mind while Visser One puppets her body around like a little meat suit. Um, that does like focus the body as the center of discussion. Yeah. And it's, it's, it also sort of in a weird way bothers me on behalf of not Visser One, but like some of the Yerks because it often feels like the Yerks are in some ways like denied identity because it's talking about the the person that they are controlling but not about the Yerk. Like there are a lot of Yerks whose names we don't know because they're referred to as being like, or whose names we do know but they're never actually referred to by name because they're just referred to by the name of their host body as if their host body is the Yerk when it's not, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. I, I think it's, you know, it's really, <laughs> it's a very different time. And I think it's hard for people to not associate the body with the person that it is, even though obviously at this point we have a little bit of a degree of separation. Um, we have like more of a concept of mind or soul or whatever. And, um, <laughs> you know, we're able to not conflate the two, but like people maybe in the, 1990s could not do that. Yeah, and I guess I just have like a lot of like weird disability feelings about this because mm -hmm. I, as a disabled person, often feel very divorced from my body and that's not really who I am. And my me is all in the little electrical impulses in the wad of wrinkly meat that is my brain instead of in my body. And so I'm just like, what are these guys up to that they're always like so focused on the body, man? Mm -hmm. I think it's a short-sightedness and a focus on material rea reality. I mean, the 90s mm -hmm. were an incredibly commercialized era. After all, they are living in a material world and they are material boys and girls. And 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 Andalite boys and Andalite alien boys. I guess he's 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 a straight heterosexual male, so I mean we can just lump him yeah. with all the other straight Pretty heterosexual material. males in this book. Everyone yeah. in this book is a straight heterosexual male, including the female characters. Yeah, but I feel like the way that commercialism has impacted their lives, I feel like they have been like it is advantageous for them to consider the body as the sum total of an entity. Because that's how they sell you clothes. Right. And then so when the Yerks come in and they sort of complicate that by sort of spending all of their time and effort attempting to conceal themselves between all of that time and effort paying off and their identities sort of like them intentionally subsuming their identity so that they can move unnoticed amongst the populace, plus all of the consumerism that the kids are exposed to and sort of like consume every day. It makes sense to me that they would do this. Uh, yeah. It's hard to divorce those two realities. If your whole life and society are just focused around materialism and the surface level, yeah. Especially the concept of gender at this time is not even able to be divorced from sex. So, like. <laughs> right, right, right. So, how can we even well, divorce, like, I mean, a in this, from in a this particular narrative? Like, I mean, obviously, like, the, the, the trans revolution had already begun at the time that this book was being written. 
but but not as visibly within this particular social thing. I'm speaking very broadly within like American culture. Right, right. I had something I was going to start to say, and then I realized it was kind of a similar argument to what you brought up about gender, which is I was going to say, well, it's not even like before the Yerks arrived on Earth, it's not even like there was no possibility of there being more than one person in someone's brain because like dissociative identity disorder is a thing. And then I was like, well, you know, people also were pretty ignorant about that in this time period. So I I don't really have a point after all, but yeah. The body's the focus of discussion. That's just how it is. In a material world, and I am a material girl. Uh, next week, we're going to be reading Animal Wars Volume 16, The Warning, which is narrated by Jake. It's got him turning into a rhino on the cover. Benny, you read that Animorphs? Hey, Benny! <laughs> I got here an Animorphs journal for you. I figured you, read it, you want to read it on your break. Oh my God. You read Vinny, about did, them adventure Animorphs? Did you read the Animorphs I gave you last week, Vinny? Vinny, we never talk anymore. I just need you to read an animal for me and then we can have something to talk about. Professor Leon has heard enough of our nonsense. I, I, I got I got I got I got places to do and things to go and people to be, so uh Hey everyone, I feel like things have gotten crazier in the world since the dripping moved into another phase and people are like, I'm real a little bit and then the dripping was like no and then they were like, Okay, maybe we're gonna walk that back a little bit. I feel like things all have gotten... this talk of phases makes no sense. It's not even like we haven't even gotten past the first phase. It's just the first one just getting worse. <laughs> yeah. Um We're all gonna die. Anyway, I just just stay safe. Like really like actually stay safe. I thought you said Say Stafe. I probably did. I do that a lot. <laughs> In anyway. addition to saying Stafe, stay safe. S- stafe. Oh. I said Stafe. Stay, stay safe, everybody. Safely. Safe. Bye. Bye. The Morph Report is now on Patreon. We care a lot about accessibility and we want to provide transcripts for our podcast. However, we are not able to keep up with the transcripts ourselves for much the same reason that we care about accessibility in the first place. To help offset these costs, we have introduced two preliminary tiers on Patreon at a $2 and $5 level, and we are working on more. If you're interested in supporting us so that we can transcribe our episodes and also so that we can pay for our hosting fees on Pinecast, please look us up or follow the link in the episode description or on Twitter. Thank you. Stay safe. Thanks to Noelle McGarelli for the use of their song Comic Book Girl off the album Field Notes from Another Place and Complicated Spoon. You can find more of Noelle's music at noellemcgarelli.bandcamp.com or find a link in the show notes. The Morph Report podcast is hosted by Hamlet Cooper, Scrivener Lamb, Marina Malucci, and Blythe. You can follow us on Twitter at Morph Report. If you have a question for the Pottermorphs, email us and we'll answer it on the show. Our email is themorphreport at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Stop in Armageddon like a comic book girl. Dead on page 11 like a comic book girl.